Graham, it's lovely to be here again and a happy new year to you all. Uh, I am very indebted to you as a fellowship for a gift that was sent to me for the work of the Lord just before Christmas and I want to take this opportunity to give my profound thanks for a very generous gift. Thank you very, very much. I have a deep affection for this fellowship and uh, certainly the way that you bless me and uh, I just trust that through the preaching of the word I've been a little blessing to you as well over the years. We have in front of us a passage in Hebrews tonight which we're going to deal with and um, we're going to read it little bit by little bit and uh, we won't deal with the whole thing. We're starting at Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13. So I think first of all we'll read just to the end of the chapter, Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13 to the end. And then before we look at that, I want to give you a little bit of a a picture. I want to try and keep it as simple as I can for the sake of, well, all of us really, as well as the young people here. We're all uh, perhaps tired at the end of the day. We need to keep it fairly simple. We'll do our best. Hebrews 6 verse 13, when... God made his promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, I'll come back to that in a moment, but why the book of Hebrews? What's it all about? What's the purpose of this book? Well, of course, the The clue is in the title. It was written, we don't know who buys. Some have felt it was Paul. Some say, well, it's not quite Paul's style. It really doesn't matter. Ultimately, like all the rest of the Bible, it was written by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, it is the Word of God. Uh, uh, But it was written specifically to Jewish or Hebrew Christians. You see, after the day of Pentecost when uh, the gospel about Jesus dying for us started to spread. Many Jews became Christians. The first Christians were all Jewish. For uh, three or four years, maybe a little longer, we're not sure. Uh, But as time went on, those Jewish believers were beginning to sort of slide back into their old Judaism, that is the legal way of looking at God, which we have in the Old Testament. And uh, gradually they were saying, "Mm, we're not sure about Christianity. They might have liked Jesus Christ, but they didn't understand 
really what God had done through Jesus. Paul, of course, was uh, quite upset about this. And uh, he wrote a letter to some of these people who lived in a park called Galatia. And he told them, you're going back. You're trying to find a, a, a way to get right with God through law, through legalism, through trying your best and hoping that that's going to get you through. But um, uh, the writer to the Hebrews has approached it, what we call, big word, theologically, trying to teach the nature of what God has done through Jesus. And that's why we have this book in our Bibles, even though we're not Jewish, because it teaches us deep things about God's way of providing for us through the gospel, through the Christian gospel. And uh, so this really is written to people with a Jewish mindset. We've got to try to understand that as we go along. Now, of course, they were all descendants of Abraham. And they believed, rightly, that God had made a great promise to Abraham that his descendants, what we call the Jews or the children of Israel, that they would forever have a relationship with God. That God would never let them go. And that they would, uh, that relationship would be in respect of the land where they lived. Uh, and, uh, and, and the writer here is reminding them, you are Jewish, you are the children of Abraham, and God has underwritten his promise. Now again, for, particularly for the young people, we read some words there which said that God swore. Now please, he didn't swear like people swear today. <laughs> it's an old-fashioned use of that word, and I want you to understand that. It means I am sh- uh, that, that they give their word. It means that God says... I am going to do this, and I, 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 I can give you my full assurance. Uh, you know, I don't know, perhaps with the, when we were young people sometimes, uh, used to say things if you were promising something in the playground, you know, cross my heart, and, well, I won't say the rest, but, you know, we used to swear like that. It wasn't swear words. It was trying to convey the fact that we meant what we say. That if we made a promise... We weren't going to break it. And here this writer of this book is saying, when God made a promise to Abraham that they would have the promised land, what we now know as Palestine or Israel, that uh, God underlined by actually saying, it's in my name I promise you. I can't get any higher than that. In the name of God, me, <laughs> The great I am, he said, I will promise you. So he reminds the Jewish people, first of all, that God, their God, the God of Abraham, when he made the promise to Abraham, he did it on the authority of an oath in his own name. He's reminding them of that. I'm going to just pause there. How important is that today when so many people say God is finished with the Jews? Which is uh, an appalling heresy. And yet it's in so many churches. That somehow God has forgotten the Jews. Hang on a minute. 
If God promised an everlasting and eternal relationship with the descendants of Abraham on the basis of his own name, who are we to say that God has forgotten that promise? Or that he's changed his mind? I'm sorry, I call that a heresy. But uh, people say, oh, no, 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 God has left the Jews now and given his promises to the, the Christian church. No, 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 no. We have promises but God has not forgotten his promises to Israel. And we're living in a day when those promises are being rediscovered, the Jewish people are back in their land, and God is still going to keep his promises with with Israel. And he uh, has underlined it with his own name. He says, by that name, I can't make a, a stronger promise than that. But then the writer takes that certainty and he says, in the same way, what God has done through Jesus is equally valid and important and guaranteed and underwritten. He says that uh, uh, it, it, it's, um, it's the hope that we have, not that just that God gave Abraham promises, but he has given other promises through Jesus Christ. He said there, as Jesus was baptized, this is my beloved son. He said on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my son. And time and time again, God has given the evidence that what Jesus came to do was not a mistake. It was not a deviation. It was not something that uh, didn't fit in with the pattern of God's promises to Abraham. It is as sure and as guaranteed and as part of the whole fabric of God's dealings with this world throughout history as anything else he's ever done. And we have this hope, this sure uh, promise of God as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And uh, it, he, he says there, it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. So in other words, in Jesus, we have this full assurance that that is exactly God's plan. We don't need religion. We don't need any other faith. We don't need philosophy. We don't need just some sort of moral regime We need to follow Jesus. That is God's plan and promise, and that is the root of God's dealings with this world. And as Christians, we believe that. We rest on it. It's our security. It's our eternal hope. And uh, to the Jewish Christians that the writer is writing to, he's saying, yes, the promise to Abraham is secure, It's now been fulfilled in Jesus. And it's been fulfilled in Jesus for a number of reasons. And one of them, this is the other part of what we're going to deal with this evening, is because Jesus has fulfilled uh, all the obligations of the priesthood. And under the um, uh, uh, promises to Abraham and the development of of, the of, of God's um, the worship of God as given through Moses to the Jewish people, uh, the central figure that they had was the priest. And uh, it's it, uh, God saying, 
Uh, and Jesus, this one who is our sure hope, our anchor, our firm foundation, he is the best priest we're ever going to have. You don't need another priest. <laughs> and uh, so he's arguing now. And he carries on the argument in chapter 7, and we're going to read a little bit here. We'll read down to verse 10 of chapter 7. This Melchizedek was king of Salem, or what we now know as Jerusalem, and priest of God, Most High. He met Abraham, returning from the defeat of the kings, and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything first, His name means, this is Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem. And it means the king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men uh, who die, but in the other case by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. So the Jewish people would say about the new Christian church, well, wait a minute, we don't have any priests. We don't have anybody with funny clothes on. We don't have anybody that offers a sacrifice on an altar. Uh, So, so, you know, we we want to go back to the priests because that was set up in the Old Testament under Moses and we understand them. They're descendants of Levi. Oh, hang on a minute, says the writer here. Hang on. Uh, Just go back a little bit to the very father of our nation, Abraham. Uh, and, And after he'd fought a battle... He came to a man who, in fact, was a priest king. He was king of the city of Salem, or Jerusalem, but he also was a priest who stood between his people and God. And Abraham went to him for a blessing. He gave him the spoil, or tenth of the spoil. And in Abraham was all the descendants, the priests that came after him. So in Abraham, they all paid respect to one man who wasn't from the priestly classes, but who had a status uh, that was beyond anything we've ever had as Jews. He was both king of righteousness and he was uh, uh, the, the king of peace. Indeed, Melchizedek, the writer goes on to say, He seemed to be an eternal person. We don't know anything about him. I won't just turn to the passage if you're making notes. It's in uh, Genesis 14, uh, verses 17 to 20. We won't turn to it. Uh, But that's where it all uh, recorded. And we don't know where this man Melchizedek came from. We don't know where he went. He suddenly appears, and he appears to be a man without beginning and without end. That's what the writer is saying. Well, what a wonderful picture of Jesus himself. Because Jesus, while he had 
as a human being, a beginning in the manger at Bethlehem. And he appeared to have an end on the cross (laughs) as God. He had no beginning and he has no ending. He is eternal. And therefore Melchizedek is a picture of Jesus. And as Jewish people, the writer is saying, we go right back to Abraham giving loyalty uh, and uh, giving his tithe to Melchizedek, who's a picture of Jesus. So we as Jewish people, he said, we should also be making Jesus our priest and king. And we should do so today. We don't need another priest. (laughs) One of the reasons why some churches have priests, and I'm not knocking them, I'm just saying we don't need them. We don't need that function, which is why we don't have a priesthood. One of the reasons why we don't have a priesthood It's because Jesus is our priest. What's a priest? A priest is someone, this is the basic idea, who stands between sinful people and a holy God. And the priest actually takes our offering and presents it to God, and brings God's word and presents it to us. That's the idea of a priest. But we don't need a priest because we have Jesus. (laughs) And so we take... Uh, our offering as we've just done today in remembrance of the Lord. And we say, Jesus, (laughs) you have given yourself as an offering for us. We now offer ourselves to you. And you're our priest. You're the one that stands between us and our holy creator God. And Jesus, we thank you. You have done the job perfectly well. You've offered yourself. You've given yourself. Not only that, you're the one that brings God's love, our understanding of God, and makes it real to us. He is our priest. He's also our king, like Melchizedek was. And Jesus is our king. He's not just our saviour dying on a cross. He's the one we worship. He's the one we follow. He's king of kings and lord of lords. Hallelujah. Jesus is prophet and king. So the writer is saying, looking, Jesus, you've got the fulfillment of all we're looking for as Jews when we're looking for the priesthood. He is the great priest and king after the order of Melchizedek. That's what he's being, that's what he's really saying here. Now let's move on to verse 11 then of chapter 7. We're going to read a little bit more. I think we'll read to the end of the chapter. So chapter 7, verse 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when there is a change of priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. He's talking about Jesus, who came from the tribe of Judah. He goes on, it is, for it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of, regu- of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, 
You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now there have been many of these priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. And so the, the argument rolls on, you see. He's having established Jesus as a superior priest, more superior than anything they'd ever had before, uh, in the order of Melchizedek, who was this great sort of uh, messianic picture uh, of what would happen in the future when Jesus came, uh, the, 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 the uh, writer gives a number of arguments as to the superior worth of Jesus. He says, first of all, all our old priests have failed. They were only human. They were failures. They, they didn't last. Some of them were, were awful. One thinks of Eli's sons. <laughs> they were terrible people. They had the priesthood. They were all failures. Uh, and then he goes on and says, but God has changed everything. There is a new era that's dawned. And of course, these uh, early Christian Jews, they, they, they couldn't see it. They thought, hang on a minute. These new Gentile Christians that are coming in, they, 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 need, to, they need to become Jews. They need to obey the law. They need to uh, get back into the, the sort of Old Testament worship that, that we had. And, uh, and the writers say, no, everything's changed. The old priesthood is finished. The old way of religion is gone. There's a new day that's dawned. Paul really understood this. He says in Ephesians chapter 3, he says, these things weren't revealed to the prophets of old, but they've been revealed to us now that this is a new administration of God's grace. A new day has dawned. It started on the day of Pentecost. We call it the church age. And the age of the law has finished and the church age has begun. Well, that was 2,000 years ago. It's not going to go on forever. And there's going to be changes when Jesus comes back again. But we're not looking at that at the, this evening. We're looking at the beginning. You see, let me make this point. We look at these people that Paul wrote to in Galatians and said, oh, uh, you know, who, 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 who has bewitched you? You know, you people that want to go back to the law, go back to the old way of doing things, and, and, and you don't like the idea of Gentiles coming in and so on and so forth. You know, you got it so wrong. He said, Christ has set us free from all of that. 
We now got the Holy Spirit. And uh, we, we, we look at them and uh, we think, why couldn't they see it? You know, hindsight's a wonderful gift. And we look back now and we can say, you know, what, what? we read the passage like this and say, well, why couldn't they see it? I wonder if we can see more clearly what God may be saying in our day. When we're around. What did Jesus say about the signs of the times of the end of the age? When these things begin to take place, look up. Because your redemption draws near. And just the same as they were living just after the change of an era, when some, this new administration was, was, of God's grace on earth was happening, um, and they really couldn't see it. Are we looking at what God is about to do? That suddenly, very, very suddenly, every Christian is going to disappear from this world. And, and the signs of the times are suggesting that that's not too far around the corner. The rapture, where, where people will say, where are they gone? Where, where, where? In fact, Jesus put it this way. He said, it'll be just like it was in the days of Noah. People were eating and drinking, giving in marriage, just everything carrying on, life as normal. And suddenly the flood came and swept them all away, except for those that were in the ark. So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two people will be... Working together, one will be taken, the other left. Two people will be in a bed, one will be taken, the other left. At the end of the age, when suddenly God intervenes in this world again. And uh, I wonder if we can really see the signs of the times and what's going on. Why should we? Simply because of this. Uh, The Lord, uh, through Ezekiel, uh, set out a principle, Ezekiel 33, that uh, we are the watchmen on the wall. That God will speak to his people. He was speaking to these Jews who were t- having problems grasping the new era that had dawned in their day. God is speaking today. I- I've met so many churches that are saying we seem to be led to study Revelation and, and, and look at the signs of the times in which we are living. And and God is going to speak through the church and warning the world, listen, it's not going to go on like this. In fact, the world's telling us it can't. All the films, the you know, Apocalypse Now and 2001 and all the rest of it, Armageddon, and, and the world is beginning to say, how much longer can it carry on? We of all people ought to know, not when it's going to happen, because we're not to know the times, but we, we, we are told to look at the signs. And the watchman on the wall has a duty to give the warning. Are we giving that warning? Now, hang on a minute. (laughs) This gospel age has been going on for 2,000 years now. Jesus has been the great high priest. But wait a minute. There's a new day coming. Uh, The end of the era is is about to happen. Uh, And we've got to tell the world to get ready. And, uh, you you know, if we were to suddenly go, the world could turn around and say, well, they never told us. They never gave us a warning. We are the ones that have to see the signs of the times of the days in which we live. And here's this dear writer to the Hebrews saying, God is doing a new thing in our day. I think that, that to me is a warning that we have to be ready to tell the world. <laughs> Peter says it this way. He says, in the last days, scoffers will come and say, where is this coming that he's been talking about? Everything goes on as it has done right from the beginning. 
In other words, um, you know, nature carries on and uh, the universe is just carrying on. No, there's no intervention by God. There's nothing that's going to happen like that. And Peter goes on to say they forget that in the past God suddenly intervened by a worldwide flood and he's going to intervene again. And as I said just now, the world is even saying, well, how much longer can it go on? How much more plastic can we put in the oceans? How much more oxygen can we use up in the atmosphere? How much more food can we grow for the teeming millions? In home country, how many more houses can we build and still have some green fields left? Uh, and, and everyone's saying there's an impending sense of change, of, 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 of something happening. Well, we know what it is. It's the judgment at the end of the age. But first of all, we're going to go. And then there's going to be a terrible time of tribulation. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's doing what this man is doing here. It's being able to tell the people who are living at that time what God is saying. He's telling them what God is saying. The old priesthood failed. There's a new day that's dawned. Uh, and and uh, the, the old priests were insufficient. Uh, and the law is not the basis of salvation. All these points come out of this passage we've just looked at. Uh, and that uh, there's an eternal priesthood that's, that's dawned. And that's Jesus. There's a change. You've got to embrace the change. You've got to be ready for what God is doing. Isaiah said, do not look on the past, God says. <laughs> Behold, I'm doing a new thing. And he's telling these people to be ready for God moving on and God changing. And God is doing something fresh. And God is speaking again today through the church to tell the world to get ready. The day of accounting for the church age is just about to dawn. And the final two verses in our passage this evening is in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, which is a summary. And here the writer says, The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by man. He's saying what we're doing is telling you what God has done. This is an absolute certainty that God has made provision for a worldwide spread of the gospel. And Jesus himself said, not long before he died, he said this gospel must be preached in all the world as a testimony for all nations, and then the end will come. We have an eternal priesthood. We have Jesus, who is sat at the right hand of God the Father. And for each one of us who puts our trust and our faith in Jesus, he is our friend. He's the one we love. He's there as our priest and our king. We serve him. And in that service, he's saying, and I want you to be ready, just like the writer of the Hebrews, to give the word of God to the people in your day. The people in our day need to hear that life is not going to carry on indefinitely, but God is going to call this generation to account. And we're the ones with that message. There is still a great high priest. <laughs> there is still someone who can offer us full forgiveness. Because he offered himself as the sacrifice, the living sacrifice. And in Christ we can have total peace with God. And we know whatever happens in this world, we will have eternal life before the Lord and with the Lord. And that's the point of the whole message. That uh, God is doing whatever God is doing. 
And we've got to be ready. We've got to accept it, embrace it, and see that he's moving on. And let me just finish on this point. Yes, there will be that time of judgment at the end of the church age. We believe it's just around the corner. Our redemption is drawing near. But after that brief seven-year period, when uh, Jesus himself said, if those days are not short, no flesh will survive. Uh, after that, Jesus is coming back to reign, and every eye will see him, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then there's going to be a glorious reign, and he who is now our priest and our king in the, in the spiritual realms will actually be here in the physical realms. And uh, the, the, the word of God will go out from Jerusalem where Jesus is, as King of kings and Lord of lords, his name being the only name. And then everyone will see him and know that he is truly the Lord Almighty. May the Lord bless us as we consider the challenge of this writer to the Hebrews, who was willing to say what God wanted him to say to the people of his day and put them right. And the lesson I draw from this is, yes, we look at the all-sufficiency of the priesthood of Christ, but also we are to say what God is telling us to say to a world in great need, to a world who needs to hear, thus says the Lord. May the Lord bless these thoughts for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going to sing in...